Well, there's been a, a lot of talk uh, recently about the United States Supreme Court, if you've been watching the news. And, and have you ever wondered how and why certain cases make it to the Supreme Court? Well, it's your lucky day because I'm going to try to attempt to explain it to you today. Uh, first of all, the Supreme Court accepts between, actually, a, a lot more than I thought, about 100 to 150 cases a year, which is a tremendous amount. But about 7,000 per year are asked for their review. So they have law clerks who work on, who work for the justices, and they summarize each case, and then they recommend on whether or not they should take the case. And they typically take cases where there was some disagreement in the lower courts. There was a court that ruled in one way, and then there was an appeal, went to a higher court, and the court you know, ruled a different way. And so it comes to the Supreme Court to, to kind of really be the, the supreme uh, ruling on that outcome. So the Supreme Court looks at how, why the outcomes were different on the specific case, why this judge ruled this way, why this judge ruled that way. And then they come out with their own ruling. It is a supreme ruling. Now, as we know, sometimes these rulings can be overturned. They're not final. Uh, but most of the time they are, and what they rule is final. It is supreme. So it's the word supreme, when I think of supreme, sometimes I think of like a, like a, like a, uh, first thing that pops my mind is a, is like a supreme pizza with the bell peppers and all that kind of stuff on there, right? But supreme, what does it mean? It, it, it means the strongest, it means the most powerful, it means the most authoritative, and again, the Supreme Court is the strongest court in the land, it is the most powerful, it is the most authoritative but to be supreme means to be number one in every facet, in every way of thinking. Today we're looking at a passage of Scripture where, where Paul clearly makes a case for the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Of all the religious figures, Jesus is supreme. Of all the views of God, Jesus is is supreme of of everything that matters in life Jesus is supreme he is first he is the strongest the most powerful the most authoritative and so as we live our lives as we make decisions each and every day we we understand that the supremacy of Christ has great effect on how we should live Today I want to show us three truths concerning today, uh, how Jesus is supreme and his uh, supremacy today. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Paul says that he, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of his cross. And you, verse 21, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father in heaven, today as we continue to worship you, we thank you that we can come in here this morning, this uh, July morning, Lord. We thank you for the rain we've been receiving, even though sometimes it can be frightful, especially to little children. Uh, but we thank you for that, Lord, and we thank you for the blessings you give us. You've given us another day under your son today and, and another day uh, that you've planned for us, Lord, because you are the supreme planner of even our lives. And every day, what we go through and where we go, you are with us, Lord. So we thank you for that truth. Father, I pray that you speak through me today, that my words reflect your heart, the heart of Scripture, that you fill me with your spirit, Lord, and that we can worship you today in your spirit and hear your truth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to show you today about the supremacy of Christ is that Jesus is the supreme God. He is the supreme God. Verse 15, Paul says that he, being Jim, uh, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So it tells us several things about God. It tells us several things that right here in this passage that God, in essence, is invisible. That, that, that what we, who we know as the, uh, the, as the Father is invisible, but Jesus Christ is the physical manifestation. He is the image of the invisible God. So the main element of the heresy that was threatening this Colossian church was the simple teaching that Jesus was not God. The Gnostic heresy taught that Jesus was just one of many lesser spirits that had descended from God. God had all these the spirits that descended from him, Jesus was one of many of them. That was what they taught. So Paul makes it very clear that no, Jesus is indeed God. He didn't just come from God. He is indeed God, and he is indeed God in two ways. First, he says that he is the image there, verse 15, of the invisible God. He is the physical representation. When you saw Jesus and when you see Jesus in the future in heaven, face to face, you are seeing the physical image of God. Amazing if you think about that. He is God in human form. And he is. He was, he's not just he was because he hasn't quit being in human form. He is still God in human form today. Jesus said in John 14, 9, he said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus himself is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he is the image of the invisible God. Secondly, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does this mean, the firstborn? Well, uh, it can confuse us as, as there's some things lost in translation, lost in culture. And this means that of all the sons of God, which all believers are the sons of God, Jesus is the, the firstborn. What that means is he is the heir. 
Now, firstborn doesn't necessarily mean that the first to open the womb. Firstborn is the one with the rightful inheritance. That, that, that wasn't always the first child that was born or the first son that was born. And it doesn't mean that, that Jesus was created. It can't mean that he was created by God because look at verse 16. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I told this story before that many years ago at a different church. I overheard a Sunday school teacher teaching one of my children about creation. And they said, who created the world? And, and one of my children said, Jesus. And they said, that's not right. God created the world. But actually, my little three-year-old was correct because she knew her Bible better. Jesus did create everything. He's not just some lesser heavenly spirit. He isn't just some other motivational teacher. He isn't just some other prophet. He is the creator of everything we know, everything that can be seen. He created the entire universe. He created all the heavenly beings, angels included. I've got a picture I wanted to show you today. I'm glad that the computer booted back up. It's helpful. <laughs> This is a picture taken this past week from the James Webb telescope. You may have seen it in the news. It's the most powerful telescope ever, uh, I guess, put together, assembled. And after 10 years of taking pictures, they finally released uh, some of these pictures have come into, into I guess, uh, being. And this, this image here is an image of what's called SMACS0723. And it is the deepest and sharpest infrared image of the distant universe to date according to NASA. Some of these distant galaxies and star clusters, NASA says, have never been seen before. This next picture is located 7,600 light years away, and this is the Carina Nebula, and it is a stellar nursery where stars are born. It is one of the largest and brightest nebulae in the sky, and, and it's home to many stars much more massive than our sun. Scientists estimate that there are, there are as many numbers of stars in the universe as there are grains of sand on all the world's beaches. Isn't that amazing? As many stars in the universe, science says, as there are grains of sand on all of the world's beaches, not just Folly Beach, <laughs> not just Isle Palms, all of the world's beaches. The same God who created this, this mammoth-sized creation that we can't comprehend, that scientists are still learning is bigger and, and, and vaster than they've even thought, that the, the, the same God who created this also knows the number of hair on your head. And if that doesn't make you feel secure, I don't know what would. He is the supreme God. And verse 17 not only is he the God, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus metaphorically holds the whole world in his hands. Not only did he create the universe, he sustains it. And at any point, he could cease to sustain it if he so desired. Scientists describe this sustaining power of the universe as a, quote, strong nuclear force that holds everything together. Now, they don't know what it is. They just know that it's some type of force. They call it 
some, some even call it the God force, but they don't think there's a God. Many of them don't. But, but they don't know what it is that's holding it together. They don't know what it is. They don't know why it works. They just know that it does. But we know who the powerful force is. It is Jesus Christ, God himself. Well, what does this mean for your life? You may say, well, that's interesting, Pastor, but what does this mean for me? Well, it means that every trouble you have, every heartache you endure, every problem that manifests in your daily routine, that Jesus ultimately is sovereign over it. It has not taken him by surprise. It has not caused him to, to raise his eyebrows. He saw it coming before you were born, and the supreme God of the universe is able to get you through whatever you're going through, no matter how minuscule you might think it looks like in your life. Jesus Christ is not just a man. He's not just a teacher. He is God in the flesh, and he shares every attribute of God that God has. So when we, we say we worship Jesus, we don't just talking about little baby Jesus or, the, or, or Jesus that did miracles or the Jesus that hung on the cross or just the Jesus that defeated death from the resurrection. We are talking about the supreme God who created all we no. Jesus is the supreme God. Secondly, Jesus is the supreme leader. He's a God, but he's not just some entity that created the world and just kind of kicked back and, and just watched as everything unfolds and, and is doing his own thing and just uh, he's, he's absent. A lot of the gods of mythology were gods like that. They just, they would create, they believed that they created this or created that, and they just caused problems for people and, and were absent from creation. But God is not a God that is like that. He is involved in his creation. And the main way he's involved today in 2022 and in the future until he comes back is he's involved in one of his special creations, the church. You know, the church is the way, the way God has chosen to reconcile man back to himself. You may say, well, well, he sent Jesus. Well, yeah, he did send Jesus, but we know about Jesus through his church and through his word. He, he, he sent Jesus to die for our sins and to buy us salvation for those who would believe. But when we believe in Jesus and his work on the cross, makes us right through God and, and through the preaching of God's word and through the ministering of God's people and through baptism and, and the Lord's Supper, the, the church draws people to faith. Verse 18, how is he a leader? He is the head of the body, the church. The head of the body, the church. I was looking at this uh, church plants. I was looking at a web website the other day, and I went to their staff to see their church planter pastor, and the very first staff person listed was Jesus Christ. <laughs> Head of the church, Jesus Christ, and it said, no picture available. I thought that was kind of funny. Then underneath there, you had the church planter and the other people. He is the head of the body. Now, the Greek word for head actually means supreme. So he, Christ is the supreme head of the church. 
and that he ultimately controls every part of the church. He gives it life. He gives the church direction. He is the supreme organizer of the church. He establishes pastors. He establishes deacons. He gives the gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. He is the supreme giver of the church. He puts people in place to do his work. He is the head of the church and is supreme in all aspects. And this should give us great comfort. Great comfort to know that no matter what we think about a church, or this church or that church, or a pastor or a leader, anything like that, that Jesus ultimately is the head of the church in every church that exists. What, what, if, what if it was up to the pastor for the church to be successful? You know, many people think that's the, the case. Sometimes some pastors think that too, wrongly. What, was, what, what, what if it was all on the pastor for the church to be successful? What if it was all on the staff or the leadership for the church to be successful? What, what, what if it was up to the deacons for the church to be successful? That's, that's a lot of pressure. Well, it's ultimately up to Jesus to make his church successful. The truth of the matter is Christ often works in and through his church despite the people. If a church has success, it's oftentimes despite the leaders. Because we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all fail. But God keeps working. And he desires to work through his people to accomplish his will. And so when the church is aligned to his will, then his church will act like it should act. So if we have a church that is not doing what it should be doing, then quite honestly, it's not following Jesus as the head. He is the head. And as a church, we are put together in the church body. We're given stability. And that no matter how bad we might mess things up in the church, Christ is still the head. He is still in charge. That's why sometimes I, I get a little annoyed when I hear people say, well, they don't really like the church, you know. Like they, they, they are Christians, they know Jesus, but, you know, they don't need the church, they don't like the church. You hear that from time to time. The problem is, the church is the bride of Christ, and Jesus is the head of the church. If you're going to say you don't like the church, then you're going to say that you don't like Jesus. Because he is the head. He is the head. Jesus is the head of the church. If you like someone saying, well, you know, I don't like Charlie, but I like the Wallace family, but I don't like the dad. Well, you don't like the family either, because the dad is part of the family. Jesus is the head of the church. He died for the church. So to say you don't like the church is you're really saying you've got a problem with Jesus. You have a problem with the way God has organized it, the way God has designed it, the way God has developed it, and the people that God has called lead so he is the head of the church and it says here that he is the beginning he is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent this phrase beginning has the idea of of being the source jesus is what gives life to the body 
of Christ. Without Christ, there's no church. You can have gatherings of people. You can have gatherings of people worshiping and singing and doing things. But if Christ isn't there, there's no worship. There's no real church. But he is the source. It says that he is the firstborn from the dead. Of all those who have been or will be raised from the dead, us included if you know Jesus, Jesus is the first rank. He rose first. We will follow one day. He is preeminent. He has first place. He leads in everything. We follow him in everything. He is our supreme leader. We have to put ourselves under the authority of God at some point in our lives because we'll be following Jesus for the rest of our lives or we'll be being judged by Jesus for the rest of our lives. No escaping it. You are not your own authority. You're not your own boss. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the leader. He is our leader and he's good. And he leads us into righteousness. He leads us into blessing if we will trust him. So he is the supreme God. He's the supreme leader. Number three, he is the supreme reconciler. He reconciles. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God is pleased. He is satisfied. He is content to lead through Christ Jesus. That's how he's chosen to lead. And as a result, we should be content for him to lead us. Said, for in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, verse 20, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To reconcile means to, to change or exchange, it speaks of a change in relationship. Uh, it usually refers to a woman or man being reconciled to their spouse. There's a separation, uh, maybe, or something like that, or something's gone wrong, or maybe even a divorce, and then there's reconciliation. It speaks to an estrangement of a relationship, this word. And now there's been this glorious reconciliation. In this specific instance, the word is actually used with the idea of being totally and completely reconciled permanently. And that is a miracle. It is a God thing that that happens. I've had different counseling sessions in the past, marital counseling. And uh, many years ago, I had one. The younger couple, and I was young too, and they were young, and they were just married and had a, had a baby, and they came in. and I mean, they were far apart physically. <laughs> relationally very far apart and I spoke to them and I, and I and I tried to get them to say nice things about each other and they couldn't even you know, I, I tried to get them to talk about how they met and hey, what, what attracted you to him or her and and I, and I tried really hard and they just were pulls apart no one been married for a few years there was there was no uh adultery involved there was no it was just they didn't like each other and and the baby had kind of come in between things and and I remember I came home that night, and I told Emily, I said, gosh, that was a failure. I, I don't think if those, that couple there, is, they're, they're headed quickly for a divorce. I don't, there's no way we can, we can save that couple. Well, 
they did the homework I asked them to do. I don't know what it was, but they did it. And months later, they're still together. And then we moved and came here, and then I heard years later that they're still married and more children than everything. That's a miracle, let me tell you right there. If you had seen these people, you would say that was a miracle. If you had been in that room for an hour, you would say that is a miracle. To this day, they're still together. Reconciliation is miraculous when God is involved. Why do we need to be reconciled? Why do we need to be reconciled to God? Look what it says in verse 21. And you who once were alienated and and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by death. We have to be reconciled back to God because we have left God. We walked out on him. And most of the times, we don't even realize it. Sin's impact in the world has destroyed the natural relationship between God and his creation. Every lost person walking around today has abandoned God. Many of them know it. Many of them don't. And they need reconciliation. They need Jesus' blood through his death to reconcile them back to the Father. They need to know that Jesus died as their substitute, that he took their wrath on the cross, that that Jesus' blood, his death, literally brings them back into relationship with God the Father. It reconciles them back to God. Have you ever known a lost person who was lost and wanted nothing to do with the Lord and came to faith in Christ? It is miraculous to see. It is a miracle when reconciliation takes place. And he says he does this in order, verse 22, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So now he's brought us back to relationship with him, and now he wants to present us as new people, new lives, new motivations, lives that are set apart from what we used to be like. The old Charlie is over here. The new Charlie is being made. And he says, verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, under which I, Paul, became a minister. That was his purpose. He became a minister to preach the gospel so people would be saved and they would become new creations in Christ, reconciled back to God. He is a reconciler. The author Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story in 1936 called uh, The Capital of the World. You can read it in about 15, 20 minutes. It's pretty short. It's about people and young boys specifically who, who move from their homes in Spain and moved to Madrid, the capital of Spain, uh, to be bullfighters. That's what they want to be. That's their dream. And so a lot of them will leave their families, and they, and they come to be bullfighters, and that's their dream. And, and it's filled with, the city is filled with, with restaurants of little boys working as waiters and servers, wanting to grow up and be bullfighters. Well, the very first sentence of the short story says this. Madrid is full of boys named Paco, which is the the diminutive of the name Francisco. And there is a Madrid joke about a father 
who came to Madrid and inserted an advertisement in the personal columns of El Liberal newspaper, which said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. And the joke goes on, Hemingway says, and how a squadron of Guardia Civil, that's the police, had to be called out to disperse the 800 young men who answered the advertisement. Now, the point Hemingway is trying to get here as he's writing this story is that Madrid was full of boys who had the same name, and there was no unique identity among them all. They were all there for the same reason. They want to be bullfighters. And if you were to say, to put an ad in the newspaper, Paco, your dad wants to make reconciliation, the, the street would be filled with Pacos. That's the point he's trying to make. But if you read between the lines there of the story, it's sad what the, what the ad says. It assumes that all these boys have left home on bad terms with their fathers to chase a unique identity, even though they all want the same thing. And if you were to put an ad in the paper, yes, there's a lot of Pacos in Madrid, but there'd be 800 of them sitting there waiting for their father to say, you can come back. All is forgiven. That's what Jesus' reconciliation does for us. What if there was a letter we could post to every person in the world, every Paco, so to speak, in the world, and said, your, your heavenly Father forgives you. Meet me at church, 11 a.m. Well, guess what? There is a letter. There is a book. There is a story. But there's a lot of Pacos who don't have the newspaper. They never read it. They've never opened it. They're missing the ad that says, meet me there. All is forgiven. As a church, our primary primary calling is to make disciples. And making disciples starts with sharing the love of Christ to people who need it. There are people out there who don't know they need reconciliation. But if you would tell them, they would come to that hotel. They would line the streets looking for it. But we need to tell them. Jesus is the supreme God. He's the supreme leader, but he's the supreme reconciler. He is a God that's created everything. He leads everything, yet he also will make it right between you and the Father through Jesus Christ. Never forget who Jesus is and his mission for the church. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, we thank you so much for what you've given us in Christ Jesus. And, and Lord, if there is one in here today that's never been reconciled to you, that's never asked you to forgive them of their sins, that, that you've told them that, that everything is forgiven, and they would make that decision today. And they would follow that up and through baptism and obedience to your call, Lord. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that, that Lord Jesus, you are the supreme God. And you are the, the supreme leader of the church. And you're a God that leads us and brings us back to relationship with our Heavenly Father, who has told us all is forgiven. Lord, take this time 
and response, this invitation time. Lord, take it, bless it today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.